In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. You know, we've been listening to your story and, and, and thank you for being so candid and open yeah, about what you've, what you've been going through. And if I was in a therapy session, I would probably say to you, Molly, I, I, I know a lot of things that you've done or I know a lot of things that have happened to you, but I, I still don't know you. I don't know who you are. And it seems <laughs> like this is kind of like a rock bottom. It crashes for you because you don't know who you are. Your, your, right. your life is almost like this manic jump from relationship to new job to new exciting experience to new possibilities and there doesn't seem like there's a lot of slowing down for you and you're just kind of trying to feed this ego uh that you viewed yourself as is like i i am you know my success who i am as a person who i am as a human being is really based on you know other people's reaction to me how they That's feel right. about me yeah it makes me very emotional because also like you know no one ever said that to me and I think that I, that would have helped me a lot. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. Sean, I want to start out with a few quotes. felt inspired to share them before today's podcast. Two of them are from Carl Jung. Let me start first. As far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light of meaning in the darkness of mere being. His second quote. Even a happy life cannot be without a measure of darkness. And the word happy would lose its meaning if it were not balanced by sadness. Just speaks a little bit to the role of emotions and struggle that exists in this human experience. The last one I want to share is from Marianne Williamson. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we're liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. I believe Humanity is in a period of rapid transformation, a great awakening where expansion of human consciousness is revealing how many of our ideas and once trusted institutions are both corrupt and harmful. The very foundations that have long shaped our collective human experience are now being vigorously challenged and reclaimed. While the psychiatric industrial complex thrives financially, 
fueled by generations entrenched in a cult of mental illness labels and pharmaceutical dependence, a rebellion is brewing. Those wounded by the system are embarking on a spiritual journey, a radical spiritual journey, reclaiming their divine nature and transcending the emotional torment and trauma of their past. This resurrection brings forth new ideas, profound understandings, and unprecedented opportunities for healing. Podcasters and alternative media are flourishing as we awaken from the mass conditioning that has kept us sick and dependent. Some of the spiritual and mystical experiences that have inspired my own personal transformation, my clinical work, and the Radically Genuine podcast are being reported around the world. Which brings us to today's guest. Her podcast, as I've mentioned previously leading up to this, uh, is rapidly becoming my, my favorite podcast. One day um, prior to meditating, um, I prayed for continued guidance and, and wisdom. And then I meditated on that. And I went deep into meditation. And when I'm able to do that, the answers always come or a sign comes. And what came out of that one is, you know, after I regrounded myself, I think I went right back to work and I got exposed to uh, the work of Dr. Lisa Miller from Columbia University. And she is the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute. She's a psychologist, which immediately directed me to today's guest, um, because she released a podcast with Dr. Miller on my birthday, Ooh. and I and I and I listened to it. I went outside, went for a walk, listened to the entire thing, start to finish, and then I started like scrolling through her other episodes, and I was like, "What the fuck? I need to listen to this," because it was titled "Back from the Borderline," mm. right? And I hate the term borderline i really do but one of my areas of expertise is in the treatment of people who collectively adhere identify with that label or the struggles that are within it and then i began to just kind of get hooked because i start listening to her healing and transformation being broadcast in real time her topics and choice of guests are just of great interest to me personally and professionally I honestly, with all my heart, believe that mental health professionals can probably learn a lot more from the stories and the transformational experiences from you know, people who've kind of been in this system, who've gone through dark times, who've abandoned it and have healed themselves instead of this dogma from academic training programs that just continues to hard so many people. Her willingness and openness to venture into topic areas that are taboo or withheld from mainstream academic circles, the ones in which I have been exposed to as a clinical psychologist, it continues to advance my own understanding of the human experience. And I'm you know, really grateful and blessed that she's doing this work. I want to introduce Molly Adler to the Radically Genuine podcast. She is the producer and host of the Back from the Borderline podcast which since its inception in 2021, it's rapidly ascended the podcasting charts. And if you listen, you'll know exactly why. 
It's landed in the top 1% of most downloaded podcasts on Apple, top 1%, uh, most followed on Spotify as early as 2022. I went into the listen notes. It's top 0.05% uh, globally. And this growth um, it just fueled you know, hundreds of voicemails and emails from listeners who've resonated with her experience. It's that genuineness that a lot of people can connect to. She's very uh, uh, critical of the usefulness as we are and the accuracy of, of psychiatric labels for disorders or dysfunctions, including, of course, the, the DSM. After realizing her alignment with traits commonly associated with that diagnosis, borderline personality disorder, she began her own journey of healing and recovery. And as I mentioned earlier, this willingness to share it on the podcast. And you can see her growth with her guests and the different areas that she's going uh, into. She has a deep passion for depth psychology, philosophy, mythology, mysticism. Um, she strives to provide like validation, peer support to her listeners. She believes, as do I, that we have to abandon this idea of disordered or dysfunctional. And I can't wait to get into some of these discussions with her to actually talk about how all this can serve our, our growth, our evolution, creating a life worth living, one that's of value. Molly Adler, I want to welcome you to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Wow, what, a, what an amazing introduction. That was very, very touching, and uh, I'm very honored. Thank you. You know what attracted me to her podcast hmm. and the artwork on her podcast? It's an acorn, a caterpillar, and then a human. Three things that transform into something beautiful. And I thought that was, I looked at that and I was like, what are we showing here? And I was like, oh, I get it. And I knew right away. Well, have you gone to her Instagram and all her memes? Uh, yes, a little bit. Yeah. Yep. She, she is. And the Substack. She is. <laughs> so, yeah, she's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Molly, I have to memeing, learn. Memeing my way into uh, <laughs> into success. My, my little sister actually made that cover art. And that's why it's so brilliant is because um, she gets it. And um, I didn't even give her any direction. She just kind of made that. And it's it's just so perfect. It is perfect. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I've mentioned on here previously in, in, social, in social media how artistic and sensitive people are more likely to be misunderstood and mislabeled in in the system yeah. you have a you have a history molly um <laughs> you know m maybe what you can do is kind of just start a little bit about kind of going back to where this transformation began for you that you got to the point where you started this brilliant podcast Whew, what a what a journey well i think it'll probably help your listeners place me if i kind of share so i'm 34 years old i was born in 1989 and I grew up in a small town in Wyoming. And so I grew up in middle America. Both my parents were school teachers. So, and my father's family actually is like from North Carolina, grew up in like abject poverty. Both my parents were really struggling financially when I was born. I was born like the first home that I was brought to was like, you know, a double wide trailer in a really, really small town in Wyoming. like. Torrington, Wyoming, when I say it's like the tiniest little town. Um, and then I grew up in Casper, Wyoming, in just a, a small town, small house, like with my family. I have two sisters. And ever since I was really little, 
I had a lot of big questions, a lot of big feelings, and that's just always who I've been. And my dad was my mom or my, here we go. My mom was my dad's second marriage. And so my mom was Catholic and my dad was raised kind of like Baptist Christian, but wasn't super religious. So just bringing in the spiritual aspect, I went to Catholic church with my mom and my grandma, but my dad never went to church with us. And I always asked my mom like, why? And obviously it's really hard to explain to a little girl that you're basically a bastard child and your your parents never got, your dad never got an annulment. So understandably, my dad's like, I'm not going to this church if they think that I have to like pay money to the church to be recognized. Like my dad wouldn't be able to take communion and all these things. And so I was a very spiritually curious child from a very young age. I remember just being blown away by the beauty of the Catholic Church. I loved going to church, even though I found it very boring. Um, but I had questions. I wanted to know, was Father Gary God? Like, why are we drinking this wine? Why are we eating this wafer? What is God? And what happens after we die? What happens before I was born? And a lot of the adults that I was asking these questions to, they were like, why the fuck are you asking this? Like, and that was literally the response I would get is like, don't think about that, you know? And I was just going, well, why? It seems like the most important thing to possibly ask. And so I just remember being very struck by the hypocrisy of it all very early on because I was just going, why is asking these very meaningful questions something that like the adults don't want to ask and yet they want me to go to church? And so I would lay awake and I, and I was – a weird a little bit of a weirdo in school i was constantly checking out books on egypt for some reason i was obsessed with ancient egyptian mythology and mummies and there was this one book that i kept checking out that my my librarian actually made me stop checking it out because other kids needed a turn but i would go to bed at night like looking at these mummies both fascinated and horrified and my entire childhood i struggled with really bad insomnia because i was so scared about dying ever since i was really little like like petrified and that pretty much colored my whole childhood and so my only soothing thing was i listened to the harry potter narrated audiobooks on tape and then cd and like i literally only I had to listen to stories um, to like not listen to my thoughts because my thoughts really scared me. I see you, Roger. Maybe you want to hop in. Go ahead. Yeah, just curious. Do you look back at that time? Do you see it any differently now through a different lens, that kind of obses obsession with that period? Absolutely. I mean, I've, I'm working with a spiritual director now and she works for something called the Center for Sacred Studies. And um, I had it, and this is like a, non-denominational it works with like indigenous elders from all over the world and i'm actually she's a jungian analyst she went to went to the zurich young young institute and i'm starting work with her very soon and i'm so excited because my dream has been to work with like a proper analyst to like talk about my dreams and all this stuff and my intro call with her is she said you know if you were born um into like an indigenous culture you would have been seen as like a little mystic and you would have been put with like the medicine woman as a child and they would have seen that these questions that you had indicated that you had an, a deep interest in these spiritual questions and but instead it was kind of like pathologized and more and because i was so sensitive as a child and i know now with all the knowledge that i have about psychologies we are wired to want acceptance from our tribe right and i saw that when i was expressing these deep questions to the people that 
I depended upon for survival, they were viscerally reacting. Not, and I don't blame them at all. You know, it's because my parents have their own things with with religious trauma, and it's generational. I went through a parent blaming phase. Don't get me wrong, but I'm out of that now. Um, but at the time, you know, I I was intuitive enough to know, okay, you need to stop talking about this because it's going to get you rejected by your tribe, right? And so then by rejecting that, I think it created these splits in my psyche. Can I share a story? Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess it was probably about a year and a half ago. I saw a, a woman who actually sought me out, sought my practice out. She was about an hour, lived about an hour, hour and a half away. And she was sex trafficked. She experienced the most horrific trauma. She was like held in captivity, treated like an animal. And all this was documented in court documents. And I imagine that when I would meet with her, I would be working with somebody who is severely traumatized and really, really struggling. She was interested in entering into our DBT program. And when I met with her, it was anything but the case. She was one of the most wise, centered people I've ever met in my entire life. And I did meet with her for a little while um, just to make sure and assess that there, you know, the experience of post-traumatic stress wasn't really profound and she wasn't really struggling or suffering in, in the ways that, you know, I would have imagined with someone who went through what she went through. Because people like that can be good at masking too. So yeah, right. I'm sure you had to kind of talk to make sure. And then it became very, very clear to me that she wasn't there for me, uh, or I, was, I wasn't really in a position that she needed the help, but she did need to communicate certain things to me. Mm. And she shared that when she was experiencing that trauma, that she like disassociated, experienced God in a different way, where everything was turned back into love, and she doesn't experience trauma symptoms because she was allowed to see the pain of her attackers, the history of her attackers, and um, experience it from a completely different perspective. So she was wow. what the mental health system would say. She, would, she had a psychotic break. <laughs> she was actually hospitalized for talking about it uh, to a mental health professional. And that kind of drove the steps in the mental health system that brought her to me. But eventually, uh, we made the decision together that she didn't really need any therapy. We agreed. Mm -hmm. And she handed a book to me and said, I, I am a messenger for you, and I need to give this to you. And it was a book by Brian Weiss, Many Lives, Many Masters. And it was my first exposure to past life regression and really looking into past lives. I mean, obviously I'm aware of the concept and the idea, but the book in itself brought me to other books, which generally was the case. And I, I just now- like Googled it so I can buy it. <laughs> yeah, Many Lives, Many Masters, Brian Weiss, who mm -hmm. was a psychiatrist who learned how to do past life regression therapy. I think that book might've been around 1980. Mm -hmm. And I was, it opened up a, a new world, including the work that, of the psychologist that came on onto your podcast from that I mentioned to start from Columbia. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I always start to, when I hear someone 
talk about being kind of obsessed with a certain time period. Yeah. I ultimately open up a wonder if that was an experience in a past life. I know I'm personally obsessed with World War II uh, and that era and the Re Revolutionary War. I have dreams about it. I, I when I have the opportunity to watch anything on it, that's like what I'm going to download, even documentaries. I can get really obsessed about it. But this mm -hmm. idea that we are so limited in our understanding about uh, mental health or well-being there's so much we don't know that's outside yeah. of our understanding or, or purview. So I just wondered if that, if you ever looked back at that kind of obsessive obsessions that you were having as some reflection of a past experience or past life that you might've had. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'm also fascinated with like NDE stuff and I'm not sure if you've ever dived into the work of um, Dr. Diana Pasulka. And then as soon as I had my experiences with uh, Chris Bledsoe, these, but, but again, that's a whole nother rabbit hole very quickly i started as soon as i started having kind of my own mystical experiences i similarly to you roger like i already knew i was very drawn to and obsessed with ancient egypt but in addition to that weirdly i also was like so nichely that's not a word autistically probably if i even wanted to seek a, a diagnosis obsessed with the tudor england time period so much so that when i was um even again, pretty young. I was like obsessively reading about King Henry VIII and all of his wives and and all of that time period, still obsessed. So much so that I have like, I have Anne Boleyn ta tattooed on my arm here. And it's um, because also she's a figure that is very inspiring to me because she was misunderstood. She was, that's why I also love Mary Magdalene. I love women that were kind of seen as these like scarlet women um but in reality they were just misunderstood and actually quite mystical and interestingly anne boleyn that it's it's written about quite prominently before her death because she was obviously beheaded um for adultery which arguably never even happened it was just that king henry VIII really needed a son and she wasn't able to do that but she did produce like england's best monarch ever so um but anyway before she died you know there was about she was in the Tower of London for a long, quite a bit before she was actually eventually executed. She thought, I think it was like four or five times that she thought that she was going to be beheaded. And so can you imagine waiting and thinking, okay, today's the day. And then they would come in and say, okay, never mind. He's decided to wait another day. Like just the most torturous experience. And she was part of the Reformation. And interestingly, there's a lot of like conspiracy theories that she was actually quite a mystical person and um, worshiping Mary Magdalene and doing all these things. But long story short, understanding mysticism. And what was the Reformation? It was essentially saying that we should have direct um, experience with the divine. And obviously their understanding of all this stuff was limited then, but they knew that the Catholic church was saying, you can only experience God through the priest, right? Mm -hmm. And but long story short, Anne Boleyn experienced probably what Eastern mystics would call like samadhi. They said that before she died, she like was like she walked to get her head chopped off with the most grace, with like completely at peace with um with the reality that was awaiting her, and um said the most graceful things. Like she forgave King Henry VIII, like made the most beautiful, elegant speech. And she was a mystic, you know, and I believe that she experienced these mystical states and there's just so many people. Um, and then once I just started reading about that, I was obsessed with her before I knew any of this. Then when I started having my own experiences, I read about that and I'm going, there's a reason why I'm 
so drawn to all of this and always have been. And then I started reading, I think, I can't remember the psychologist, but it's not this book, but I read another psychologist who writes a lot about NDEs. And then when I started getting into non-human intelligence and the work of Dr. Diana Pasolka, and then I don't know if you've ever heard of, you know, the movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Yeah. It's like the most amazing movie, beautiful depiction of like mommy issues and generational trauma uh, that was just like stab in the heart watching that movie for me. It was really rough. I ugly cried. Thank God I watched it alone. But it's it really – there's a lot coming out now and it's ironic that mystics have been saying this for thousands of years. Um, but now quantum physics is proving, you know, that – what is time is the past is happening at the same time as the future is and dr diana pasolka in her brand new book encounters interviews this anonymous woman who is deep into ai right now saying that she believes like ai is us in the future right and i know all of this sounds it might sound crazy but i just as soon as i stopped thinking anything was crazy like that's when i actually started feeling the least crazy if that makes sense <laughs> Yeah, I, the same has happened to me. When Once I learned that all experiences are happening for us and not to us, it was yeah. a, certainly a perspective shift that uh, altered my consciousness. I'm, Brilliantly I'm, put. I'm interested in um, understanding your story, that what brought you to Los Angeles and some yeah. of the things that you went through there. Yeah, so as I mentioned, it's probably helpful to kind of realize how I got to Los Angeles. And so I told you I grew up in Wyoming ever since I, I has always been just an extra. I'm the classic person that probably would end up with a BPD label, like, which I never did by the way. And that's a whole nother story, but I identified with those characteristics. I was always too much, too emotional, too loud. Look at me, look at me like a little kid. Um, and always pointing out the dysfunctional shit going on in my family. Whereas, you know, I had a mom and a sister that kind of took the understandable and very adaptable approach of kind of just like not saying anything. My dad was, when I say that my dad went through like a child called it level of abuse, like my grandfather, again, Appalachia family in the South. Okay. And my grandfather, they were so poor that like couldn't afford shoes, eating potatoes every single day. My grandpa was drinking cologne to get drunk. Right. Mm. And, um, and so killed my dad's dogs. Like my dad went through hell, uh, growing up. And so my dad being the dad he was, it's actually amazing that he was the dad he was able to be given what he went through and had no therapy. But my dad had a lot, had, his emotions ruled our house, you know, his, his anger ruled our house. And my dad and I have experienced great healing, um, over the last few years and he's really mellowed out in his older age. Um, but when he was in his thirties, you know, like he was at his peak of just rage and he never put his hands on any of us, but people that grew up with like walking on eggshells of like the the explosive emotions of a parent know that that can be just, and I've had relationships where I did get physically abused. So I know that emotional abuse and that can be just as um, psychologically damaging as physical. Yeah. And it, it kind of gets into a greater discussion about the function of, of emotions as being yeah. necessary gifts. Like imagine being in that type of environment. I mean, it really does provide you extreme value to be on edge and to yeah. be sensitively and acutely aware of any shifts right. 
in your right. father's tone of voice or his body language that could yeah. anticipate that he's angry or that he'll be physical or violent with his words or anything. So yeah. you kind of grow up and you become shaped that, mm -hmm. you know, there's danger around here and I have to be really, really sensitive to it. And what that does to the nervous system and how it can just affect you eternally and it can be very difficult to kind of manage that internal energy because right. of that, that threat. And, and you know, well, sorry, sorry, Roger. I'm like, I'm curious actually to know your point, like your th thoughts on this too, because I didn't do myself any favors. Like I told you, my little sister who has her own, and I don't like to talk, I don't even really talk to about, her, about her a lot on the podcast because her journey is her own. <clears throat> She's my best friend in the entire world. Um, I have a half sister, but she was nine years older than me. And so she moved out at 16, like she was gone. And her home was actually my sanctuary. I would go stay at my big sister. She got married at 18 and I would go stay with my sister and brother-in-law like on the weekends sometimes. And their home was like so safe for me. And again, not that my home wasn't safe, but it was just like, you know, the moods were a lot. Um, but my sister, my little sister, she just went inward completely. And so, and became super, you know, vigilant. She would just go in her room to escape. I picked the hardest route. Like if my dad was saying something or acting a certain way, I would say something. I'd be like, that's not how a dad's supposed to be, you know, da, da, da. and I'm telling you, that's how like, and we'll get to my LA experience where like a woman when I was in sex work said, you got to get out of this because you're going to be the bitch that gets killed. Like, because mm. you can't shut up. You can't close your mouth. And I've always been the person when I worked in tech, you know, like I will always speak out against the guy that's the sexual harassing CEO or the guy that's treating people like crap. And that started everyone would always say I had an issue with authority. And in reality, I didn't, I had an issue with abuse of power and adults who claimed to be adults, but were just acting like really destructive, big babies. And, <laughs> and so I did not pick a very easy route. I could have probably made my life a lot easier by just like shutting up sometimes, but no matter what, I could not shut up. I wanted to talk about how screwed up it was. And we only went to family therapy one time and we went to family when I was probably 15 and we went to family therapy and um, we only lasted one session because I started talking to the family therapist who was acting, asking very good questions. And I just said, I was telling them what the home life was like. And as soon as they started talking to my dad, you know, we got in that car and we never went back to therapy, yeah. right? Like we didn't make it past one family therapy session. It's so easy, Molly, for you to become the symptom bearer in the family yep. environment. Scapegoat, the, the classic. scapegoat, classic scapegoat. And my understanding would be that you never really had a choice. Like if we look at your soul, your personality, it was nothing ever that you could tolerate being quiet. You had to yeah. speak up. You had to challenge uh, illegitimate authority. And I think those, when we see those in personalities, I tend to work best with people who have that personality. My brother knows me quite well. So he knows that some of the things you just discussed were similar attributes to me and in areas of my life. I can't tell you how many people, you know, said, you know, you just got to learn to shut your mouth. And <laughs> it was never something I believed to be a, to be a choice, but it's, yeah. it's certainly, if you look at, uh, at your, your life as a, as a whole right now, and you're still on that journey, of course. It, oh, it was, now it, I've found a healthy way to challenge authority, <laughs> right? Like I've found a healthy way to challenge systems. Cause look, 
even now looking back, right? Like, cause for a while my dad was the enemy. And then my mom was also the enemy because my mom looked the other way. My mom would just say, why do you always have to have the last word with your dad? Right? Like, just don't say anything. And, and look, she was trying to protect me in her own way, how she was protecting herself. And my dad was hurting and my mom was hurting. My mom came from like the most emotionally constipated home where like my grandpa, I never saw my grandpa say, I love you once. Right? Like, and so then my dad are arguably came from like the opposite, which was like super emotionally volatile. So there was always going to be this, it was going to be a shit show and I don't blame them at all for this. And now, now I realized, and I realize this now very deeply. That's why I don't say psychiatrists are the problem or my dad's the problem or my boss is the problem or the guys that we're seeing sex workers are the problem. It's the incentive models. It's it's the unaddressed emotional shit, you know? It's it's all of it. It's the systems. And so now I take aim at those, which is which is a much healthier way to go about things. True. As an adult, I mean, but you were disrupt yeah. you were disrupting an e uh, an ecosystem, right? So everyone yeah. in there is trying to survive. And I've yeah. always said on this podcast one of the things that both fascinates me and scares the hell out of me is the human capacity to deny reality. <sighs> And that, that capacity to deny reality in a system like that, where you're someone who was forcing rea the reality back onto everybody is such an invalid, called an invalidating environment. And that's what we see with the, the diagnosis of BPD about this condition. Uh, the yeah. way that Marshall Linehan talks about it is from a biosocial perspective, where there's a biological, oh, uh, I don't like to use the word vulnerability, but you experience your emotions intensely, as you mentioned experience big emotions, big feelings, right? Yep. Big ideas, big questions, right? And if, the, if you're in the wrong environment, that can get punished. Yeah. Uh, and when you act on what you're experiencing in an, in an authentic, genuine way, and, and someone tells you you're crazy or to shut your mouth, or you know, you're the problem, you're too much, what, what do you learn? You learn that your experiences are not valid ones, that there's something broken that exists within you. And yep. from a perspective, like learning how to manage your emotions in a way that directs it into something effective or positively, it's, I mean, it makes nearly impossible when you can't even trust your own emotional experiences. And I'm That's sure right. just from listening to your podcast is what you've certainly been able to learn is to be, to trust your wisdom, your, in, your intuitive nature, and to look at your, and understand your emotions as, as guides or gifts that are provided to you. Yeah. And I mean, I always kind of felt, I felt like I was a victim to my emotions. And I talk a lot this about this on the podcast is like, <laughs> and obviously cursing is fine on here, but it's just like, I felt like my emotions were just like making me their little bitch for the longest time. Cause mm -hmm. I was just like, I felt like I, I was just a walking reaction, you know, like, and just to circle back and answer how I kind of got to LA Ever since I was young, I just didn't feel like I – Wyoming is the most beautiful place, and I can actually really appreciate it now, like going back to it, having lived in – I lived in London. I lived in LA. I lived in Denver, right? Like I was the classic, like try to get away by moving places and changing myself, but everywhere you go, there you are, they say, and that that is uh, one of, I think, the most truest statements. Um, but ever since I was in Wyoming, I just knew – I was like, I don't belong here. I wanted out. I wanted – I saw all the people I grew up with basically just like staying the same. I didn't see a lot of evolution. Uh, I I didn't see a lot of diversity. I wanted to learn about the world. And I just, 
I had this weird feeling like I always wanted to live in London. And so I ended up moving to London. Um, I got an that's one thing that's always been about me. If I want to do something, like I will do it. Like I'll figure out a way to make it happen. How old were you yeah. when you went to London? Um, so I applied for a study abroad program and I did that when I was, I think I was about 20. And um, I, when I was there, I was there for just about, I think it was like a four month thing. And right at the end, I met a guy there who I absolutely just fell in love with, you know, some might say trauma bond, but at the time you were not going to tell me that. I fell in love with him. I came back to the States and we were long distance for about a year and we talked every single day and he came and visited me. We visited each other every three months. I ended up moving to London um, to go and I went, to, I finished my degree there and um, we got married. Three months after um, we got married, he cheated on me and um, it was the worst thing ever. You know, I, my whole reality fell apart. I thought, okay, I've got this fairy tale. I moved to London. I have the handsome, you know, gorgeous British husband and it all fell apart. And now looking back yet again, I spent a long time blaming him. He had infidelity in his family and he didn't really know how to process his emotions. I was not a fun person to date then. I can look back and know. I, that's when I realized that like my relationship with my sexuality was really messed up. You know, like I I felt like I could be a sexual person when I wanted to get someone. And then the moment that I was in a safe uh, relationship with someone, it's almost like I became like celibate. Like I felt like I immediately developed this sexual repulsion the moment that I was in a relationship because I never had intercourse or sex to enjoy it. I, I did it because I felt like it was something that I had to do to get someone to love me. Use the word trauma bond. Can you explain yeah. what that means to you and how it played itself out in that relationship? I think that I can't speak for him, right? Because I don't know what was going on with him. And interestingly, I haven't, I haven't really spoken to him since we, we, left. I when I say I classic like split on that, the biggest thing I miss is his mom. His mom was like the most amazing person and she did so much for me, but after that happened, like I had to just like cut everyone out because it was too heartbreaking and painful for me to deal with. Um but for me the trauma bond was like, okay, look, wow. I I there were so many red flags, right? Like when we first started dating, early on I saw that he was kind of in like talking to someone else and he told me he wasn't talking to her anymore. I saw some uh, evidence and he said, no, no, it's not anymore. That was like, and my intuition is very good. Like I knew it, but I didn't want to believe it because I, I had this beautiful vision of what my life could be with him. And so it's like, I wanted to turn off all of those things and go full steam ahead. And don't get me wrong. He was a funny guy. We had so many great, we had a great connection with each other. And I still like, we grew up together. Like we, we went through so many good experiences together, but I wanted what I thought our life could look like a lot more than what the reality was. So in was the face. idea of him created in your mind more than what was actually experienced? 
Oh, absolutely. Like, um, like I said, though, he was in, he's such a nice person. I still wish him well. I didn't at the time, but I can definitely say that I do now. And his family was lovely and literally took such good care of me when I was there. I'll be forever grateful to them. But it was hard, you know? And so when that all fell apart, I tried my best. So because I have a, a renewed appreciation for what it is to be like an illegal immigrant in a country because I was there. I went through all the visas. I had student visa, fiance visa, marriage visa. And then when when I was so close to being able to get my indefinite leave to remain, so I could have just stayed. All my friends were in London at this time. I'd been there for like five years. You know, like some of the best friends you make are in university. And like I made the best group of girlfriends in college. And I had just, I had amazing connections. And I love London. So Molly, I feel like, I actually feel like I'm in session right now. And yeah, I, yeah. I, that's I, why I, I'm not talking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually want to bring you back to some things that are like really relevant. You drop, sure. you drop those bombs that they're really yeah. important. And then you, you kind of tangentially went into <laughs> another direction. So I want to bring Classic. it back. <laughs> um, so like, I think that's an important piece because what you said is very familiar to me. And my work with clients and you talked about the the struggles with your own sexuality like yeah. using sex as a means of creating a bond or creating a yep. connection and then yep. actually once you have it that you now develop uh, now you talked the about ick. almost like a repulsion to, yeah. to sex it can be very upsetting and distressing to the person but it, I, it externally has in my experience extended beyond that sometimes it's a, a um the ick or having uh, such an, an aversive reaction to their partner after their partner loves them. Yeah. Yep. That's definitely a thing. And I, it's really weird. Like even still, like now I'm starting to heal from that. And now I'm actually starting to understand what like a healthy relationship actually looks like. Like a healthy relationship is security, right? And a lot of people that grew up in a traumatic environment when we, I, I, I was the classic person of saying, oh, if there's no passion, then I don't want it. You know, when in reality, it's just that people like me are not used to feeling safe, are not used yeah. to feeling secure. And so you feel like almost then you sabotage a good thing, you know, by, and that absolutely happened to me. And we obviously can get into it, you know, from about age of 14 online, I experienced a lot of um, sexual abuse and grooming at the hands of older men. When I was about 14, um, I was just like any other millennial girl on AOL Instant Messenger at, at the age of as early as 11 and 12 with mm -hmm. my friends playing on AOL Instant Messenger. Our parents had no idea because nobody did. It was the wild west of the internet. And of course, in these chat rooms, they're like anonymous chat rooms. And of course, we're talking to probably like 60, 50-year-old dudes and they knew how old we were. And then come into the picture MySpace where you could put pictures of yourself up. And I had a small town and I had guys that were in there, you know, like 20, between the ages of like 25 to probably in their early 40s um, talking to me when I was between the ages of 14 and 17. Some of that was just online exchanging like pictures and messages, but a lot of it graduated to them like picking me up and like taking me around. And my the guy that I lost my virginity to was like a 29-year-old a guy when I was 17 years old. Do you remember what that felt like to, to be a teenage girl and to kind of get that type of attention? 
oh, I was flattered. That's the thing. And that's why it kills me to see people, you see it all the time. And it actually, it fills me with a lot of like rage when I see people saying, oh, it's it's been 25 years and you're just now coming out saying that you were like sexually abused. And that it's like, yes, I can understand. Because the first time I realized that I was a victim was probably a year and a half ago and I'm 34, okay? Like I didn't realize the depth of this. This happened even like after my podcast. Like I was sitting, one of my best friends was my ex, my ex manager at my job. Her name's Tara and she lives here. She has a beautiful family. She has two young sons, but her son is ever like it's crazy being friends with someone who has a son when i first met tara her son was i think like 12 and now he's like almost 14 and just the changes that happen to like a young man in those ages and i remember i was at their house for dinner and tara said like that her son like has a little crush on me and i was just like that's so cute but i would never say anything about it you know because i don't want to mortify him but i remember like looking at this young boy and number one he's just so handsome he's getting all the attention from the girls at school and but i looked at him and like i just thought men that were my age were looking at this boy like at his age and seeing it like in a sexual way and how easy it would be for me to manipulate this boy. And he would think it was the best thing in the world probably, yeah. you know? And that I felt sick. I actually had to go to the bathroom and like have like a deep breathing session with myself. And it was like, hit me like a brick wall of saying, oh my God, like I was victimized, you know? And this, the whole Me Too movement happened and I've had experiences of actual rape. So I was sexually assaulted once when I was drunk at a party by a guy that I was dating and his brother, um, which was a horrible experience. And then I was sexually assaulted again by a person that I was dating. Um, but I never connect. So that I knew, I knew that those were instances of rape, but when you realize that like a whole nother level of abuse that you hadn't even connected happened. And like, that's like years later, decades later, it just filled me with such a sense of disgust because to answer your question, I I would never, I would have laughed in your face if you would have told me you're being abused. Don't do that. No one would have been able to convince me otherwise because I thought I was a willing participant in this. I was yeah. so flattered and I was having a great time. These guys were treating me well. Like the, they were really nice to me. These are the these are the challenges that we actually see in, in clinical practice is, you know, you'll you'll ask for trauma history, you'll explore that in initial evaluations. And, and many people will not necessarily view that from a, a lens of that they were victimized. And, yeah. uh, you know, and if they don't see it as something that is, is traumatic, then, you know, th that, that's fine. That's their experience. We're not trying to place trauma on somebody. Um, however, there's so much shame and there's so much underlying shame and disgust and they don't understand why they feel it. Yep. And yep. they, blame themselves for putting themselves in that position. It's very confusing because they were excited by it. That's why I asked you yeah. the question, how did you feel as a teenage girl? Not in, not in a way to put any, any blame on you, but to talk about what, how natural it is to have somebody give you that type of attention and be attracted to you. But the, the difference is that, you know, developmentally, there's such a, a diverse shift in, you know, your child. And, yeah. uh, you know, the uh, a just society 
a loving society, compassionate society takes care of the most vulnerable. And children right. are vulnerable, especially adolescents. And you don't adolescent. feel like a child when you are a teenage girl. That's the thing, because you want to be an adult so fucking bad. Yeah. And I'll tell you a story that'll probably make you just so disgusted. Like I was a sing, I, I love singing. I've always loved songwriting. And there was, I just feel like music producers, that archetype, no offense to music producers out there who are just like genuinely good people. But I think that like this archetype of creepy dude sometimes is gravitated towards the role of music producer and especially music producer in small town Wyoming where he's like, yeah, little girls come sing in my microphone, like gross. Well, there was this guy in our town who was um, the boyfriend that I had that was the sweetest person in the world, actually my age. Um, he was also a singer. And, but there was this guy who we would go to his house because he actually had a music setup. So we would all like record there. And of course, I'm sure he loved it because like it was all just like a bunch of like underage girls. We were like, he was in his 30s and we were all like, you know, between 15 to 18 years old. And this guy would literally ask me as a joke. He'd be like, so I have my calendar the day when Molly turns 18, right? Like he would be saying like, when are you legal? And yeah. That was such a thing. Like when we look back on when I grew up, the, that that was the time of like Nickelback videos and like video vixens, right? And and it was so glorified to be so hyper sexualized. It was like girls gone wild. The archetype that I was fed, and I was, I always still wonder what would I have been like if I would have watched other depictions of women on on screen you know what what would i have wanted to become what if i would have seen like more stevie nicks more joni mitchell more mm. you know what i mean but i was fed this archetype of what i had to be and i talk about it all the time on the podcast and i received hundreds of emails about this because i say i shoved myself into what i call like the hot girl box like i saw what i had to be and i like i I shaped my identity around that, but I was actually just like a little book nerd, you know, like yeah. I, I was trying to be something I wasn't. And we were speaking a little bit about social contagion before we got on, uh, started yeah. recording. And it just speaks yeah. to how important a culture is an environment is in shaping yes. identity because and that you can't blame the parents all on that. Right? No, like, no. It becomes your idea of what is a woman and how, yes. how do I feel good about who I am? And if I feel yeah. good based on my, by my body, my sexuality, or the yep. attention that I get from men, imagine what that begins to shape for you in how you approach adulthood. I mean, you, right. you, you feel good by seeking out and gaining that attention. And, and often, it, it, I would imagine, it's, there's a lot of unwanted attention. Yeah. And I don't think that's spoken about enough because um, there's a guy who I feel like you guys should have him on your podcast. His name's Daniel Mackler. He's a fellow radical therapist. Bruce Levine knows him personally, by the way, and has his email contact. Apparently he's pretty hard to get a hold of because um, he's just off. He quit being a therapist and now he's like backpacking in Africa and doing all these things. He's so, so cool. But he did this episode all about pretty privilege, you know, the concept of pretty privilege. And I thought it was the most incredible uh, in-depth explanation of this. And when you are just like a conventionally attractive girl and you start getting – because. I'd like to make very clear, you could put me in some countries and I would not fit the beauty standard. You know, people might think, wow, she's hideous, but you put me in the right place where I meet the beauty standard. And I'm in the United States, especially when I was growing up, it was white girl, blue eyes, you know, long, shiny, blonde hair, and like 
trauma fucked up. And so I wanted a bunch of attention. I was like a magnet to these guys, right? And so I started getting that attention from a young age and I just wanted to be seen, you know? Like I just wanted to feel seen. And these guys were hot. They were nice. They were not creepy pedo in the van asking me to pet their puppy. They were like hot dudes. And so I loved it, you know? And as soon as I started real, and the first time that I was intimate with somebody, I mean, my husband and I talked about it. He was actually one of the people that really helped me understand this because finally with him, I've had like a safe space to like work through some of this sexual stuff and God bless him because he's been through it with me, you know? And I was even celibate for a while in our relationship because I just needed a break. Like I needed to figure out who I was and he's just like, take all the time you need. Like my husband is a saint and he he also has an understanding of like that's not what a relationship is about we're going to be together forever right and we might have periods of illness where that's not even possible if you're with someone just because you want to have sex with them what even is your relationship you know or if you're like feed me i have needs you know that is the opposite of this guy and thank god um but he just said to me you know he was with me that night when I when I like had that realization about what had happened to me and I talked to him about it. He said, Molly, like, he's like, when I had sex for the first time, it was like when I was, I think he was like, I don't want to give away too much of his information, but he was old enough to hold that experience. He was a consensual participant. And he was like, and I had sex for the first time with someone of my own age where we were going, oh my God, what's happening? We were laughing. This is awkward. You know, like he's like, we were experiencing it in a place where we were both like, what the fuck is going on in kind of like a funny way. And he said, and so I always look back on my first time as kind of funny and awkward. And, and he goes, and even since then, I've always been intimate with people that were around my same age and he goes so i never really experienced trauma like that around it because he's, he's like molly you literally never got to experience that you never got to have intimacy with someone where you kind of were safe and were learning alongside you were kind of and that is true i had to feel like i was performing what i thought a woman would do yeah. and this gets into a whole thing of porn i was seeing porn online the first time i ever saw porn online was at school there was no firewall i was 10 years old and I see what a woman should do in porn, right? And that is not what sex is like, and nor should it be that way. And so it's like I was performing my whole life. I was performing sexuality. I was performing what womanhood should be. And then it's like I got slapped in the face with it at 29 when I was like suicidal and my life was falling apart. And I realized like I've let – society to build me you know i've never built myself what would that look like and so my whole podcast journey it has been real time if you start from the beginning and like some of the listeners that come when i see on my patreon they're like some people are going what episode should i start with and everyone always says start from the beginning because and i can imagine it's pretty eye-opening if you start from episode one and listen to like now i'm like it's almost like a spirituality podcast at this point like when you start at episode one then you see me get red pilled of critical psychology <laughs> psychiatry and then i go into spirituality and i'm doing like non-human intelligence like it's watching me turn into myself in real time i'm building myself molly can i ask you about your first experience into the mental health system and how yeah. you were labeled conceptualized. Yeah. So that actually brings me to the point of 
you know, the, the LA, because it was in LA. Um, well, interestingly, and I have a pretty cool experience because not many people that are American can say they also had an experience with the NHS in England. So after my divorce, obviously I was fucking devastated. I got cheated on three months after my wedding. My husband like was like fucking a dental hygienist on Tinder three months after everyone flew to Wyoming for our wedding. Mm. Who wouldn't be devastated, right? Like who wouldn't? And I was alone, no support system, right? Because it was all his family that were, were my support system. So I was all by myself and I was in another relationship like where I got immediately into another relationship after before I had even moved out with my husband I was dating another guy from work who ended up being really physically abusive and so I ended up in the office of a GP you know general practitioner and I was telling them I'm so depressed um I had to get time off work and in England by the way you can get pretty generous time off work for mental health like that's a really good thing about their system when I tell you in a 10 minute appointment, I was put on citalopram, 10 minutes. Like, and I had told them what happened to me, right? Like never once did I get any other. And of course I took it. Like I just wanted to feel better, but they didn't say how long I needed to be on this. What would happen if I didn't take it anymore? You know, I but I was given an antidepressant. Didn't right tell you about the risks of it. Nothing, nothing. And so, she was just a general practitioner. So full no of one, compassion, by no the way. one just sits with you and says, Molly, this is exactly how you should feel given the events that you're experiencing. Yeah, no, they no. just view it as here's the, this is depression here, take this pill. Yeah. And so that's what happened. And then I found myself like I went to therapy, but I only did like two sessions because I have to say like some therapists suck. <laughs> and I went into the, the office of this therapist in London and it's just like, there's only so much you can talk about, you know, hence why I really liked up psychology and stuff. Because when you can talk about your dreams, when you can talk about some of these things, it gives you more meat. And also I'm a deep thinker. Like there's only so far I can get with something like CBT, you know? And well, so well, Molly, <laughs> I mean, just having you on the podcast for about 55 <laughs> minutes, I think there's a lot we could talk about. <laughs> yeah. You got quite a history and then, and yeah. there's a, there's a story, you know, there's and a story what, of your life. That's right. And, and the, the thing that I've gotten, my good friend, Donna, like she's amazing. I worked with her, but she was an early supporter of my podcast. Like when I first started it and when I would tell her things, she's like, holy shit, you did that too. She's like, you've lived like five lifetimes. She's in her fifties. And I was just like, I really have. Cause I've, I've done so much um, and partly because I was just like running from myself. So I was just like doing a million different things. But now I understand that it was all part of what I was supposed to do. So in London, I got on my first SSRI. I was trying so hard to stay in the country that I got like uh, I got sponsored by this financial recruitment company. You have to get sponsored to work there and like live legally in the country because my marriage dissolved. I begged my husband. I was like, can we please just stay legally married for one more year so that I can get my permanent residency? And when I say, I think that was really fucked up. I think he should have done that for me. Like there's the one thing he could have just done for me so that I could not have had my whole life uprooted. But his dad stepped in and said, absolutely not. And so we got divorced, which means I had to find sponsorship quick. Otherwise, Ma Ma I was did, gonna... he, did he want the divorce? We tried to make it work uh, for like six months after. And it's just once that I just couldn't do it. Like we both, I, I, it was just too, if you can do that three months after our, our wedding, like it's just, 
it's not like we had kids and you know it was it was on tinder for god's sake you know three months after our wedding some people i i don't think infidelity is black and white i think some people if you have a house and three kids and you make a mistake and if you can work through that okay but like it was so early on and even me i just knew this is not what i want and so we decided to part ways and I and I and honestly if I was his dad I probably would have given him that same advice is like you guys need to part ways. I just really wished that I could have just gotten that permanent residency because I had been there and I had built a life there. But it is what it is. I got sponsored by this financial recruitment company. Long story short, I left there because on my boss's computer, he set me up on his computer and um I saw some Skype, Skype was used back then, I'm aging myself. I saw some Skype messages and when I say they were talking about him, he and my manager were talking about me in the most derogatory sexual terms. I was so fucking disgusted and also terrified because do you know how that feels to feel like they're sponsoring me? And one of the messages said like, basically she better not put a toe out of line because we're sponsoring her. Like basically we have control over her like she can leave the country. So it's like, haha, she's fucked kind of thing. That was the vibe. When I saw those messages, it was like a stab in my heart because working in financial recruitment in London, like this was a boys club. The amount of disgusting comments that I just had to like laugh off and every woman will understand this. Like you just have to pick your battles. And <sighs> I laughed off so much disgusting stuff and I printed off those Skype messages and I went to a lawyer in London and I ended up trying to fight this case. But let's just say when you're an immigrant, like you're fucked. Like, like it, there's just no winning. But it was so traumatizing when I tell you they retaliated against me. They had like five people in the office make statements against me saying I was a bad worker. And it was the most – so not only was on antidepressants, had like that horrible marriage. Then the guy I was dating at the time ended up like – beating me up. And I just said, I'm done. I'm moving back. Like I can't stay here anymore. I don't want to be having jobs based upon who will sponsor me. So with my tail between my legs, I moved back and I was in my childhood home at 25 years old in Wyoming again going, what the fuck is my next move? I ended up moving to Denver and I'm going to fast forward really quick. I work. I worked in tech in London. I was working in tech for a while. I worked at Groupon, which is a great experience because I made a lot of really good people. Loved working in tech at the time. Um, but then I moved back, got a job at a, a tech startup in Denver. And um, But I've always been really into music. And I was actually making headway in my music career in London while I was working. I was working with some producers I really liked. I was working with this amazing producer. Um, I don't know if you guys know the band, The Sneaker Pimps, but um, they were a 90s band. So the keyboardist from that is an amazing producer in London. He's worked with Lana Del Rey and stuff. And I was working with him, right? And that's another reason why I just wanted to stay. I was telling my husband, I'm like, I'm finally like doing this songwriting thing, please, you know? And so that was devastating. I had to leave everything I had built. And so I'm in Denver. My music career is on pause. I end up um, but this producer I was working with virtually said, Hey, like you need to come to LA. Like, what are you, the fuck are you doing in Denver? Come to LA, this guy. And I'm, he will remain nameless, but he is tied to a very prominent music producer who is getting a lot of shit in the media right now. And his name starts with D. Um, and he was con um, connected to him and I get a call from this guy and he said, I've heard your music. I, I love it. I think your writing is really good. 
you need to move here. Like, let me fly you out here. Let's take a couple of meetings. I'll introduce you to some producers here. And I just said like, what the fuck do I have to lose? And I'm no stranger to uprooting my life and moving. So I was like, and I was so stable that I'd finally gotten like a a house, a, a studio apartment, a really cute studio apartment in Denver. <clears throat> Great job that I really liked. I was making good money, but I uprooted my life and I moved to LA and I moved into a house that I was sharing with um, a couple of girls. And I started really hitting this music career stuff hard. And I got another job at a tech startup though. So I was doing tech and then at nighttime going to the studio Long story short, this music producer guy was cool. Or, or my manager, he hooked me up with a lawyer that was really good. Um, and I was going every night, spending nights at the studio, writing all my own music and working with this producer. It was great. And this guy, this guy that was my manager had a wife, kids. Like I was like, finally, finally, it's like a non-creepy situation, right? Wrong. So one night I'm at Soho House in LA and I'm meeting with my manager and I just knew the vibes were off. And I was like, huh? And so we finished. He's having a meeting, right? Like talking about my career. And then we get into the elevator and he was basically like, so the vibe was, do you kind of want to like come to come with me? And I was like, in my mind, and again, every woman knows this, you're kind of going, okay, what the fuck do I do? What the fuck do I do? Like my whole career flashed before my eyes in that moment. Like I'm like, how do I like, ha ha ha, giggle my way out of this one? Like I can't. I'm in the elevator and he's like making a proposition. <clears throat> but in my mind, like it just hit me. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not fucking doing this. Like I am not doing this. And so I giggled my way out of it. I like basically, I think I said I was on my period or something and I was feeling bad. And I was like, haha, no, I've got to go home. And I went home and I just started crying. Like I was just like, what do I do? Like finally, I'm so close to having, I had a project that was almost finished. I was like, I was finally working with someone who had real connections. And I called this woman that he worked with, like, and she had been kind of like a, like an adoptive mom to me because she was helping me with all my photo shoots. She was kind of like his assistant. She was in her forties. And I called her and I just told her what happened. And she was dead silent on the other side of the phone. And she said, Molly, don't say anything. And I was like, but, <laughs> but like, what? This is so fucked up. And she goes, this man and the people he's connected to could make you disappear. Mm. Period. And, and I went, what? Like, are you actually serious? And she said, and when my heart, I still get chills thinking about it. She said, please believe me. She's like, I know. She goes, yes, it's fucked up. And in my mind, I'd be like, why do you work for him? Because <laughs> this, the, her vibe was, this was not the first time she's had this conversation with a girl, okay? And, and she just said, you will be bye-bye. And this is the kind of money and power you're dealing with. You need to just let this go. And I just said, well, I can't work with them. And so the next morning I email my lawyer and I just, I, I didn't even like say anything. I just said, Hey, I'm just inquiring about like what my options are to get out of this management contract. And, and this lawyer is connected to your manager. Like that was the referral. That, okay, yeah, yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. And so, but I didn't say anything. I just said, Hey, I just need to know what my options are to get out of this management deal. I don't know if there's like I just don't think that they're, we're simpatico anymore, right? Like I think maybe I want to go off and do my own thing. No response. Two days later, I get an email from my lawyer saying he's dropping me and my manager's dropping me. And then I get an email from the producer where when I say that I've been working for 
I've been working in Santa Monica. I was living in North Hollywood. I was working from I was up at 6 a.m., back at my home at 7 p.m., and in the studio till 2 a.m. So when I'm telling you that, like, I was killing myself to get this project out, it was the best, still the best work I've ever done. And my producer emailed me and said, I'm done. And I'm like, what about my masters? And he's like, they're not yours. So for all I know, my song could be playing in Estonia nightclubs right now, and I don't even fucking know, you know? So I – went into the worst mental health spiral that I ever have been in. I couldn't go to work, so I quit my job. I Then I found myself on a sugar uh, baby website because the thing is, is that I thought I had a good friend who worked in bottle service and she said, Molly, you know that you could just be making so much money if you just did this. And I was like, but I don't want to have sex with old creepy rich dudes like and she goes oh you can do it without having to have sex with them you can just like go to dinner with them and just kind of like you know giggle your way out of that I'm like well I've done that my whole life for free so why don't I just fucking make some money doing that so I signed up um on that platform and I started getting messages it was the most disgusting experience of my life because most of them are just the most I just feel like I'm throwing up in my mouth just thinking about it because you get how are you not just messages. completely disgusted by men at this point given your experience with them? <laughs> Trust me, I was, and I think that I think that that also I t- I turned. You hear like a lot of red pill incel type guys say like women hate men, and I'm like, some of women hate men for a reason, yeah. <laughs> okay? Because they've been through shit like I've been through, and it really is not all men because you want to know how many nice funny guys i just never gave the time of day because they were just like there wasn't any passion in other words they like weren't an asshole to me you know um and that just breaks my heart looking back on it now because i could have there were so many times where i know the universe put like this sweet smart funny like guy in in my face and i almost and i almost did it i almost sabotaged my relationship with my husband your husband seems like he's that type of guy he is, and I almost sabotaged it. And then my best friend at the time literally told me, bitch, what are you doing? Like, don't fuck this up. Like, because I told her, oh, I don't know. He just doesn't have good taste in memes. And she's like, are you okay? I'm going to slap the shit out of you. And she told, I was about to ghost him. And she said, go and have, um, go and do this face-to-face. She's like, go and tell him face-to-face that you don't want to see him again. And so I did that and I tried. And when I told him, I just said, I don't think if this is going to work out and you'd want to know what his response was. He said, well, can we still be friends? Because um, LA is a wasteland and I haven't met anybody here and I still really just want to hang out with you. And I went, what? You still want to be with me? Mind you, this bless his heart. The first time I met him, I said, number one, I'm celibate and bipolar. Are you scared yet? <laughs> and Boy, he, he like, is a saint. We have to do a is. podcast with him. <laughs> no, trust me. He actually would be a really good guest. But I, the reason why is because I had just emerged from this sex work period in my life where that's a whole, like, I'll, I really want to finish that because, and, and but Zaz's response. Can I, can I ask response, you a question? Can I ask yeah. you a question first? Like, yeah. I'm interested to know how you made sense of pushing him away. Now you have this really nice guy who just seems like a, a saint and you're finding ways you use the word sabotage you're, you're finding a way to just push him away how do you make sense of that for yourself because i think genuinely that i i part of me thought i was going to push him away anyway so i might as well be in control of that 
You know, I would rather me say no than him get to know this broken, fucked up person that I believe myself to be and have to deal with the rejection, which I had never dealt. And that leads me to how the rejection, the only one time I've ever been rejected in my life was what set me into a suicidal spiral. So I was doing um, the sugar baby thing and I realized very quickly I could not get away with this without being intimate with these people. And so let's just say to spare you, I could do a whole episode on the traumatic experiences that I went through in that. But I I ended up in wine country in uh, San Francisco with this guy. And I had convinced one of my best friends to come with me because I didn't want to go alone. And I found myself in bed with this dude and he was starting to like touch me and I went, oh no, like now I'm going to have to like do this, right? And I couldn't. He was coked out, so drunk and I just went, oh my God. And it was 3 a.m. I got up and I went and tapped and I – and again, like I was really drunk like – and my friend B was a little bit drunk too and I went and tapped her and woke her up. She was sleeping on the couch. I said, we have to get out of here right now. It was 3 a.m. It was – and again, we were – I do not advise this because she was not sober. I was not sober. Thankfully, she was better than me. I said, we have to get the fuck out of here right now. Like he started falling asleep and I'm like, we have to leave. Like I, I can't do this, please. And she's like, are you kidding me? Like at 3 a.m. And so we drove away and we drove back to her apartment in San Francisco and thank God we got there safely. But I just didn't know what would happen to me and I knew I just couldn't go through with this. We got back. He stalked me and harassed me for probably like three weeks after that. And then my other friend, I still was broke and I still needed a job. And mind you, I'm depressed as hell this entire time. Like I'm trying, I'm just barely getting by drinking smoothies because I'm too depressed to even eat. And the only way I'm dragging myself out of bed is to go on dates with these dudes. And I find myself, my friend goes, well, like I'm working these underground poker rooms in LA. And basically what you do is because there's guys that are really rich, like, and I, again, I saw many celebrities uh, that I could name, but I won't. <laughs> and I, um, I work these underground poker rooms in LA. The idea is, is that obviously it's not legal. And so they go and meet up at these like skeezy ass places and it's really late at night and all the guys are playing poker and they hire girls to like serve drinks and be harassed quite frankly. And there's like a woman who ran kind of like the money um, at those places, which she kind of like, it was big madam energy. She was like so stereotypical. She was like Eastern European and like she'd seen it all. And she like kind of took care of the girls and we would ask her advice for things or whatever. And she's the one who like told me. So I was starting those and I was a, I was a hit at those because the thing is, is that I wasn't dumb. Like, and I mean, telling you bless the women in LA, some girls just there were just some girls that just like couldn't have conversation. And so I could have really good banter with some of these guys. And honestly, I met a couple of really cool guys that just like had really good conversation with me and they were clearly there. Some of those guys were legitimately there because they wanted to play fucking poker. I will give them that. And they were not creeps. They just wanted to play poker and probably had a gambling problem, but not a creepy, abusive man problem. And so, but some of the guys, well, the majority of them were just disgusting and they thought of you as just an object that like if you didn't do or go along with what they wanted and I snapped back and it was funny for a while but then one night the woman pulled me aside like the the Eastern European mommy lady and she was like I need you to know that 
and yet again, this is the second time I'm being told that like you're going to get disappeared by one of these dudes if you don't like fucking tone it down. And she's just like, look, there's a reason why some of these girls take the dumb bimbo haha approach because it's actually the safer way to go about it. And they're not dumb. They're actually just like protecting themselves. So like fucking get it together or else you're going to get bye-bye. And I was like, oh. And so again, I'm just going like, what am I doing? And this whole time I was doing it, I never, I was the whole time, every night I went home, I'm like, what are you doing? You, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. I hated it. I was full of shame and depression. It was making me hate men more by the day. Like I was despising men. And so I was that girl that was posting on my Instagram, by the way, had 10,000 followers on Instagram from my music career. All of my pictures were like so sexy, like showing off my body and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're doing it from a psychologically integrated place but I was not posting that I had on my Instagram it looked like I was living the life in LA meanwhile behind the scenes I'm suicidal drinking smoothies for for dinner living with three girls and doing sex work basically and so I ended up getting on this dating app called Raya and I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it it's a dating app that you have to, you basically get approved and there's like all these different celebrities on it. They'll approve girls basically if you have a certain Instagram follower. I got approved. I started, I went on a date with this guy, again, will not name, but he's a successful actor. And I started dating him. And again, it happened with what I did with the London guy. He start, He took me to his house in Silver Lake. He was really nice, really funny, older, probably in his 40s at the time. I was like 25, 26. And I'm like, this is it. If I can lock this guy down, my life is set. Yeah? Like, because I was a mess. I, I, I could barely work. I didn't want to do what I was doing anymore. Is, is that how you viewed it? That, oh, yeah. That finding the right guy to kind of save you? And 100%. So you're still in this, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier and what you learned as a young girl yeah. and what you were exposed to, you're still viewing your life in a similar way. And that, I'm only saying this, like, hearing even myself say this, it makes me sad for that girl, you know, because I have so much to offer now. I'm smart. Like, obviously, like if you would have told that girl what I'd be doing now, she wouldn't believe you. Right. But I was just trying to get by. And I literally thought like, I liked what that vision looked like. I liked, because again, I'd be living in LA, dating successful actor, moving into his beautiful fancy house and everything would be fine, right? But in reality, this guy had a Coke problem. We'd go to dinner and he'd be like going to the bathroom every five minutes and girls top tip if the guy you're dating is going to the bathroom every five minutes, it's probably not because he has a bladder issue. <laughs> so <laughs> guaranteed, he definitely had a Coke problem and, um again, there were red flags. There were distinct red flags, but he was fun. We had a good time. They weren't like as major, uh, but it was just like, clearly he wasn't the right fit for me. I was like so set on this working out. Fast forward like three weeks, we'd been dating for like three months. And to give this guy credit, I get a call in the middle of the day and I'm thinking we're going on a date that night. I was so excited, right? Cause I'm living for that. I'm like putting my whole identity into this. And he calls me and has the most respectful, kind uh, talk to me and basically just said like, hey, because he had just gotten out of a really serious relationship, like an engagement and stuff. And he said, look, I've realized like 
I'm just not ready to jump into. And he could probably sense that I was like fucking attaching myself to him like a parasite and like in retrospect, but he was just like, this isn't, this isn't working out. I think that it's not fair of me to like lead you on when I'm not ready for something serious. And then that was that. And I just remember like hanging up that phone call and like my whole world fell apart and it wasn't because of him, but I realized this was my grandma had just died. And then my grandfather immediately after that had committed suicide. And so like all this is going on. Yeah. Like everything I've told you and I'm 26 years old and I'm in LA and I have no one and, and I don't want to fucking do sex work anymore. I have nothing. And I just was like, okay. And by the way, at the same time, this is this cherry on top irony of it all. I had applied for a uh, master's program to start going to school to be a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> the LOL. Okay. And then because I knew that if I got, I was living off the student loans, mm -hmm. but I will tell you, I was a year into that master's program, got straight A's um, because I love psychology. But the irony of me going to school to be a therapist when I was the hottest mess that's ever existed. So I was in this master's program and that's when I became suicidal. Like I wanted to die it was the worst it's ever been. I was having, and that's when the panic attacks started. Like I would have full on panic attacks and I didn't have health insurance because I had quit my job. And so I called my mom and I told my mom and dad that I'd been doing sex work and they were devastated, obviously. But again, still like didn't even have like the emotional capacity to like say, hey, you're better than that. Like, you know, like we love you where it was just like, don't want to talk about it. And I said, I'm suicidal. I need to go to the psychiatrist like and i do not have insurance and i also don't have enough money and my parents said we'll pay for you to go like just make an appointment and we will and and that is i thought again this psychiatrist in my mind became person who's going to save me instantly like i was like this is all i need to do I what did you believe was what did you believe was wrong with you well i wanted to die <laughs> I was having multiple panic attacks a day. I could not get out of bed. Like I was just like in my people that have not been at that people that have not been that depressed do not fucking understand. Like yeah, so Molly, I wanna, could not leave my bed. <laughs> yeah. So that's how you were feeling. Um, yes. like that, I want to know why you believe like what you believed might be wrong with you that you would experience all those things. You know, I'm going to have to email you guys this video because I played it on the podcast before. I took a video of myself. It was like very quickly before I went to the psychiatrist or maybe afterwards. It was from my depression bed in LA. It makes me cry every time I watch it. Um, it makes me cry thinking about it. But I basically was saying like, because and I never even posted that video and I don't even know why I took it. It was just like almost like part of me wanted to document that, like, you know, and in the video, I look horrible like i'm like swollen i was in my lip injection phase which like i was getting so many injections i looked like a hot mess and in the video i just said like i can't do this anymore like i'm so depressed what is wrong with me that's what i just kept repeating so like to answer your question i don't think i could have told you like i just said i know that human be i see everyone else like functioning in their life like why can't i function you know like why can't I just do life? Why do I feel like I want to die? Why does it always feel like, why have I been raped multiple times? Like, what is it about me that is like a target for horrible experiences? You know, like, I think I just really thought that I, 
there is something fundamentally wrong with me as a person. You know, we've been listening to your story and, and, and thank you for being so candid and open yeah, about course. what you've, what you've been going through. And if I was in a therapy session, I would probably say to you, Molly, I, I, I know a lot of things that you've done, or I know a lot of things that have happened to you, but I, I still don't know you. I don't know who you are. And it seems <laughs> like this is kind of like a rock bottom. It crashes for you because you don't know who you are. Your, That's your, right. your life is almost like this manic jump from relationship to new job, to new exciting experience, to new possibilities. And there doesn't seem like there's a lot of slowing down for you. And you're just kind of trying to feed this ego uh, that you viewed yourself as is like, I, I am, you know, my success, who I am as a person, who I am as a human being is really based on, you know, other people's reaction to me, how they That's feel right. about me. Yeah. It makes me very emotional. Cause also like, you know, no one ever said that to me. And I think that I, that would have helped me a lot. Um, and I found myself in that psychiatrist's office and this is what I do. Like, I, I think I do what a lot of people do. And I, and I had many of my uh, listeners have emailed me about this. You find yourself online Googling, you know, what's wrong with me? And of course, what popped up? Borderline personality disorder. Yeah. And when I read all of the symptoms and signs, like chronic feelings of emptiness, you know, suicidal ideation, splitting, all these things, which arguably we could say society is struggling with it in mass right now. But um, I thought that's it. That's what's wrong with me. And I grabbed onto that label so fucking hard. And I, I just for our yeah. listening audience, if I can just yeah. kind of go over some of the other criteria that yes. is used for this diagnosis, um, kind of chaotic interpersonal relationships, unstable interpersonal relationships, Check. I identity disturbance, <laughs> Check. <laughs> um, chronic feelings of, of emptiness are, you know, yeah. are a big one. And I can just see what you're trying to, you're trying to fill that void that's with right. with attention or uh, you know the the lip injections are are one of those things that just kind of stands out like i need yep. to change how i look and that is my value yes that's what it was and now and that's a whole nother thing but the spiritual starvation right because i didn't have a sense of meaning i didn't have a sense of like a a sense of being what i say on the podcast of like being part of this fabric of something bigger than me i didn't have that and i think that was a huge part of my suffering because if i would have had the the sense of spiritual integral spirituality that i do now i wouldn't have been feeling that way nor would i have gone down any of the paths that i did but now i understand the purpose of that so when i found myself in that psychiatrist's office i mean I look like I do now. Again, I can present myself well when I need to. And so I, but I was goblin girl behind the scenes, which I like to say, like, I was just like looking awful, like crying in my bed half the time. But when you go out, you know, you get yourself together. You, I mean, I was found myself in that psychiatrist's office and I told him, you know, of course he's like, so what, uh, what brings you here today? I told him about what was going on, what had happened in my life, as much as you can in a 15-minute fucking psychiatrist Jesus. appointment, which is all you get. And he was, again, outwardly very sweet, very nice, you know? Like, um, And I said, I told him, I know that I have, I have, which I don't even use that phrase anymore, I have BPD. I looked it up. I have all the criteria. Like, 
I printed shit out because that's who I am. I've always been a homework doer. I printed it out and I was like, this, look, this is it. Like, this is me. And what and did he said? And what yeah, did that mean to you? Did that, was that like an identity then at that 100%. point? Like, this is who I am. I was born this way. Well, I don't even know if I even got that far. Okay. All I knew is that I just wanted an answer to why I was so fucked up in my mind. Like I just wanted, if I find out what's wrong, I can get a medication for this and I can like get out of here and start being normal. Like that's all, I, I couldn't even think about it that far. And that's why I'm gonna send you both this video because you're gonna like get a kick out of it because just my limited understanding for psychology, you know, like it's just, it's just blows my mind. Like I just didn't know. And that's the average everyday person yeah, and because you're just we right go to, to these be people. taken advantage of. And yes. an identity becomes shaped through this. I, That's right. I have borderline personality disorder. I am BPD. Yes. Yeah. And so this guy looks at me and he goes, you don't have BPD. Trust me. You do not want borderline personality disorder because it's incurable. And in <laughs> my mind, I went, what? And now I know that just there's so many bullshittery of that that we could unpack for a whole episode. <laughs> but he said it's incurable. Um, and I'm like, he goes, I, I think more what you have, uh, like what you're showing traits of is, oh, and he, oh, and he said, you're too high functioning to have what? BPD. And in my mind, I'm like, bro, so let me guess I am not functioning. <laughs> <laughs> let me guess the diagnosis. Uh, yeah. Bipolar two. Precisely. Yeah. Good job, doctor. Yeah. <laughs> that's, he what, said. that's what they're going to sign to anyone who's experiencing high levels of emotion yep. dysregulation, regardless of context. He uh, said, he said, not only do you not have BPD because you're too high functioning, it's incurable. We're going to treat you for bipolar two because we, it's, it's very treatable with mood stabilizers. And you want to know what I felt in that moment? Oh, thank God. I don't first, thank God. I don't have this incurable personality disorder. Yeah. And two, thank God there's this, there's this medication that can fix me. So he put me on Lamictal. Okay. And you probably know about Lamictal and you know, if you are someone who's taken Lamictal, that they, there is this reaction that you can get from Lamictal that is very scary and dangerous, but it's very, it's rare, but you can get like, a, if the doctor basically told me, or that he's not a doctor, let's just make that very clear. But again, a whole nother episode. The psychiatrist told me, um, be careful, be on the lookout for, um, you know, this itching or skin reactions, because if so, then we need to immediately get you blood work and make sure that your liver enzymes aren't elevated. Because if they are, we need to take you off of it immediately, but don't worry. There's lots of other medications we can try. Um, and so I started getting the rash. And of course, immediately I'm like, holy shit. I go to my doctor at UCLA. He does blood work. And my doctor, by the way, was the sweetest person. And he is the only person that I met with that basically was kind of – he now looking back, he was going, why are you on this? Like what – he asked me what happened to me. And he kind of alluded to like, hey, you've been through a lot. Are you okay? Like um, – but he told me like, you need to immediately get off this because it's dangerous for your, you, like you're having this reaction. It could threaten your life where you need to take this, stop taking this now. Went back to my psychiatrist. Let's just say that from, I got another job. So I was able to have health insurance. So I was able to go see this psychiatrist more regularly. And I, by the time I was done, I was on Vyvanse, Buspar, another SSRI, Xanax, um, and Seroquel. They were like, 
antipsychotic. So I'm saying like I went through like five different medications. Yeah, unfortunately this is way too typical. So, you know, it's new it's new drug, up the dose, reaction, new That's drug, right. add on this, give this for the side effects of this yep. drug. Oh yep. wait, now you have ADHD. Let me just keep yep. adding diagnoses until you are in absolute hell. Yep. And he gave me Xanax, okay? Because I was and I will say Xanax stopped my panic attacks. Like thank god for it because actually like i needed it for a little bit i thought at the time like because i didn't have any other supports you know i didn't have any no one was giving me any other like breathing techniques or anything like that so xanax when i took it stopped my panic attacks but my doctor never told me about the proper use of xanax so i was splitting them in half i was taking one every like five hours and so the next time that i went back to my psychiatrist i was like i need a refill of xanax and yeah. he goes why do you need a fucking refill of Xanax? I was like, well, he goes, how often have you been taking it? And I went, well, like every five hours. He's like, uh, don't do that. I'm like, you didn't tell me not to do that. You said to take it as needed. And I, he goes, only when you're panicking. I'm like, I'm always panicking. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it doesn't, the whole idea doesn't even necessarily make sense because first of all, that drug is going to create dependence when you start taking it for a week yes. or two, like automatically. And now I you have a new problem. Out. Now Fuck around and find out, as they say. I sure did. Yeah, you're dependent on a benzodiazepine. And so the idea of panic is different for, for you, right? A, a panic attack, you feel like you're dying. A lot of people go to the yes. hospital. And then there's yes. high-level emotional intensity, which isn't necessarily right. panic, but it, yes. in our we label it that way. I'm panicking. I'm really anxious. I'm really upset. And let me go take yep. a Xanax. And now you're learning that whenever I feel an emotion that is uncomfortable and that's distressing or where I feel overwhelmed, I can turn I to, to this powerful it. drug. And yep. it is very powerful. Benzodiazepines are very powerful. It'll calm you down immediately until you need more, right? Yep. Once two weeks go, uh, you're going to need a little bit more to get the same result. And now yep. you are dependent. And you know we've that's had so right. many podcasts on the hell of benzodiazepine dependence. I mean, it was brutal. And you know, this is so cool because we've kind of come full circle um, because it was at this time that I was just in all, in all these different drugs and I had so many side effects. Like I was struggling and, but it was around this time that I met my, hu my husband now and, um, you know, tried to sabotage that. He, as soon as he said, can we just be friends? I was like, record scratch. And then I went, never mind. I think I actually want to date you. Okay. Um, because he's I, just really smart. He played it that way. On it, and you know what? He doesn't have it in him. And so, and, and in the, in the best possible way, he's the least probably why you he, trust him. Yes. He really meant that. Yeah, and so immediately genuine. something in my mind said, don't fuck this up. This is like the first safe person. And so we started, um, we moved in together pretty quick because LA, like he was like staying with me. And I think a lot of people that live in big cities know that sometimes you just end up living together way faster because every rent is nuts. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so we moved in Sean's together. Sean's from LA. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. moved in together way sooner than we probably should have. And it was a crash course. And he quickly saw like all these little orange containers and there were like five of them at a time. And he wasn't the type like he just, and that's the beauty of Zaz. He always has kind of like, let me figure things out on my own. He's not the type saying, I don't think you should do this. He's like, let's, his favorite statement is like, let's see how this plays out. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so Molly, I, I do have some questions about Zaz, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, you do everything you possibly can to scare him away, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, you, and, I, and boy, did I. I did. Uh, why doesn't he 
get scared off? I think because he has his own trauma history. His mom um, has a, had a really traumatic upbringing. And so he, Zaz likes to say that he knows crazy women um, and, and just like in a funny way, right? Like he he has a history. Um, his uh, family side is Polish. And so he goes, I'm no used to like, I'm used to dramatic Eastern European women. of, And his grandmother was very emotional. And, but an interesting part is Zaz grew up in a home where his grandparents um, had like Tibetan monks staying at their house. They were very deep into spirituality. His grandmother had like esoteric books, was deep into like esoteric Buddhism, all these things. They traveled around the world. They had the most amazing um, experience. Zaz was, is very naturally a spiritually inclined person, but so spiritually inclined that he was never attracted to any religion because he's just a mystic in his mind. He sees it as all the same. And so Zaz has this like inner center and he always said, and I'm trying to think of the best way now in retrospect, he said, I knew who you were and I could clearly see what was the trauma and what was the you? And yeah. I thought, like, let's just wait this out because I actually let's see how this plays out. Yeah, like, that, I think that she's gonna figure this out. Yeah. So you labeled yourself as as crazy, but that's not how he sees you. No. He uh, he observes you for you. Yes. Right? He sees you who you are outside of your reactions. Yes. And Zaz is an interesting person because he watched my i hate the phrase spiritual awakening because i think it's been co-opted and turned into this like new age nonsense but i and it's a shame but zaz witnessed my spiritual awakening it is kind of like so he said one day all these these pills he's just like molly look i support you no matter what but he's like when i look in our fridge and i see because we had a like, tiny studio apartment i just shoved all my my meds in the fridge um and he's like every time i open the fridge like i see these these orange bottles and i think you are not crazy you do not need to be on all of these fucking medications and he also goes is there a point where you won't be on them or are you going to be on them your whole life and and that and and i really want to say because for your listeners it's not like he was controlling me it's not like there was a care there and he goes look i support you do what you need to do but when i see this it makes me concerned you know and i i hadn't thought that far ahead i'm not very i wasn't very good at thinking ahead at this time and but immediately i thought oh yeah like am i really going to be on these forever then the universe made the decision for me i lost my job i found myself at the pharmacy I found out that the meds that I was paying only like $4 for, I was going to have to have, the bill was 800 something dollars for my refill. And I thought, and it was right there to them. To, I looked at the person and I said, well, I guess I'm not getting them today. And I left and I went off cold turkey. And I love how psychiatrists say never go off cold turkey. Well, what if you don't have a fucking choice, yeah. <laughs> right? Like I didn't have a choice. And I tell all my listeners, if you can, do not do what I did because it was horrible. I worked at a drug and alcohol rehab center in my other life, not in a real other life, when I was 19. It's what I did when I was in college. And I watched people come off of meth, you know, oxycodone, all these things like alcohol, which is like one of the hardest detoxes that I witnessed. And I felt like my clients, like I was going, what's the difference between someone coming off street drugs and coming off of what I'm coming off of? I felt like I was dying. And I, tr I tried everything that I could. I, I was having the brain zaps. I was having, um, it, it, it's like, it's like, 
it's like a flu, you know, like you feel dead, you don't feel good. And then your depression gets even worse. The suicidal feelings came back stronger than ever before, even though I was in a really safe relationship. You know, that's the thing. It didn't make sense. I was safe. Everything was fine. I was with a really good person and I like wanted to die again. And I was going, oh my God. Like, and if I had the option, I probably would have gone back on the meds. And then I found myself like breaking them in half and like taking a little bit. And then like, you know what I mean? Because I had some that I could like ration out. And I thought, what the fuck? I'm like a drug addict. Like, I'm like, let me just get a little bit like to make myself feel better. And that's when I started getting angry. I'm like, why did no one tell me about this? Why did no one tell me I would feel like this? And so I found myself, I I got like a colonic. I went to like a, a saunas, like infrared saunas. That's one of the things that helped me actually the most. The colonic was horrible. I like I got so sick after that. Um, I don't, I was vomiting for days, but I will say that. So don't recommend that to anyone, but I do recommend like the, the infrared sauna helped me so much during that uh, time. I went every single day. Um, and then just like drinking and you actually just, I was white knuckling it. That's what they say. And I think I was not back to feeling myself for six months. And honestly, I think I'm lucky that it was that short. Yeah, you, know? you are lucky. You're one of the lucky ones. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. really important. We've, we've let everybody know that you never cold turkey those drugs. They're serious never. mood and mind-altering drugs that are acting on the brain. And cold turkey, cold turkeying those drugs or even tapering too fast can be potentially fatal. And it is. And it has been. So yeah, certainly you're, you, know, you, are, you are blessed just to yes. be able to kind of get through this experience and not be back on those, yes. those drugs. What happens to you when you begin to recover from that? So again, enter my spiritual awakening TM, but like, we're not, not the cheesy kind. Like that's why I talk about what I talk about on my podcast, because I think people need to understand what it actually looks like. This isn't crystals. This isn't shiny, happy times. This is like the dark night of the soul. This is going through the underworld. That's why these myths exist. Right. And what I talk about on my podcast, I deeply believe that we are missing like initiatory experiences in our society. And part of those like ancient cultures would teach their young people about going through the underworld and understanding the dark times. And I went through this and that's why I say Zaz is amazing because thank God he was there because I had someone to talk about and we laugh about this now, but it's actually, I think this is a beautiful example of what like a, a very real practical example of someone going through a spiritual awakening. So I was on, um, I, I will say that I was self-medicating. Thank God I was in California because I replaced, like I was um, vaping weed quite a bit at this time. And I will say, I'm not saying someone should use weed, but wow, did it help me? I wasn't abusing it. I did use it a little bit and it did help me because I was feeling a lot of nausea around that and it was legal use. Okay. Um, now I'm, I'm not utilizing that anymore. Um, but I did at the time. And so I was, that was helping me. The infrared sauna was helping me. I was, you know, cause I would use it when I would start feeling really sick, like really bad. But one day I was laying in bed and I came across this article and it was this article about like how some people don't have an inner monologue. And I'm sure you've heard of this, right? Like there's this thing where some people don't have like thoughts in their mind. They actually kind of think more conceptually. They might like visualize things. I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm going to fuck this up. But I was fascinated by this article and I went, wait, some people do not have what's going on. 
my inner monologue is a mean bitch. I was like, (laughs) I have so many horrible thoughts going on at all times. I cannot sleep because I am just constantly thinking, thinking, thinking. And because I hadn't done any mystical studies, like now it's like I'm a whole different person, but I identified with that inner narrator. So that was me. These were all my thoughts. And I, and Zaz and I, it's our biggest inside joke because he'll laugh now. Um, I was sitting there and I said, Zaz, um, do you think thoughts in your mind? And he's sitting there on his computer and he was like, what in the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> he was like, of course I think my thoughts. What in the fuck are you talking about? And I was like, wait, 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 I'm reading. So I told him the article because it was just out of nowhere. And he's like, how stoned are you? Are you okay? And I was like, no, seriously, I'm reading this article. Some people don't have an inner monologue. And he was like, oh yeah, I've read about that. Is that, it's not aphantasia. Is that what it is? I don't know. I don't know um, the exact but, term. But anyway, he was like, yeah, I've heard of that. He goes, oh, okay. Like maybe you're not as crazy as I thought. You're reading this article. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm with you now. And he goes, yeah, of course. I, I think thoughts, but those thoughts aren't me. And I went, what? What are you talking about? They aren't you. What are you then? Okay, this is this is spiritual awakening. Yes. People don't want to talk about this. That's what it is, okay? And, and I was like, all of this stuff Zaz said that like, he still laughs about my face he was like he's like we have an inside joke of saying you're piecing it together he's like are you piecing it together right now I was like yes I'm piecing so much stuff together and so in that I sat there silent for probably like 30 minutes and I was like what, did, what does he mean that then I, so I said what do you mean that you're not your thoughts like please explain this to me he's like we need to watch the matrix <laughs> <laughs> I've, n- I've never seen the matrix before either so then zaz and i watched the matrix i'd never watched the matrix and that's embarrassing for me to admit now so after we watched the matrix like zaz was like okay it's time to go to bed I could not let Zaz go to sleep. I was like, wait, so what about this, this? I was like asking him all these questions and I was waking up. Like I was going, oh my God, you know, like maybe I'm not my thoughts. Then I started just going down that rabbit hole. And then I started, then I had my first mystical experience, which I've talked about on the podcast before. And this was one night where, and I was going through it. I was so depressed. I was still experiencing like these weaning off side effects. And I was laying in bed one night and I was closing my eyes. And it was after, I. this is when I was really starting to try to search for some spiritual stuff. I was thinking about trauma, right? I was starting to read things. And I did this meditation. And this meditation asked you to imagine being back in your mother's womb. And I did it. And I found myself just sobbing profoundly. And the person that was narrating the meditation basically said like, you're either going to feel really happy about this and safe, or maybe you're going to feel anxious. And I just felt like terrified and sad. And I was just sobbing uncontrollably. I went to bed and I closed my eyes and I had not prayed probably since I was like, a little tiny kid because I used to pray but like neurotically pray because I was told to pray (laughs) um like and I thought I would go to hell if I didn't pray so I used to like I think every kid knows what it feels like to have this like little neurotic robotic prayer that you do at night so that you go to heaven but I hadn't done that for years and I I would think I before that I would have considered myself agnostic like I loved when I would see people that were very spiritual because I thought I I wanted that, but I didn't feel that. And I had never experienced anything that would make me feel like there was anything out there. So 
I think I would have just said I was agnostic. Never was I atheist because I wanted so badly to believe, but, and I didn't de dedicate any time to reading about it. So I'm laying there after this meditation. I was so sad and I just like closed my eyes and I finally didn't like listen to a podcast or anything. I just sat there. And then all of a sudden I like, it's, uh, I didn't hear a voice. People are probably going to think you're nuts, but this happened to me. I didn't hear a voice, but I had a knowing of a voice. So it's just, I, I heard the words without hearing the words and people that have been through this will immediately understand this. So I heard the words, you are mother. I am mother. We all are mother. And I had what I now know. And immediately I felt so calm and I felt like I had the answer, like, but only for a second. Like, and I felt so peaceful and I felt like something was there with me and I felt so calm. And after you've been so depressed for so long and you feel like a moment of relief like that, it's something that really changes you. And ever since I had that time, I have been on a spiritual rabbit hole. I found the right books, the right people have come into my life. I was seeing so many synchronicities um, to the point where it's like you said, Roger, you know, you're like, you had experiences that are hard to, I can't even explain them, but I am where I am now because of that moment. You know, like I, I had, when I came up with the idea for the podcast in my mind, it says you need to start a podcast and you need to call it back from the borderline. That's how instant that yeah. that came to me. It came in my mind and Zaz, Zaz can be on record. I went up to his studio and I said, Zaz, I'm going to start a podcast and I'm going to call it back from the borderline. It was that instant. And I started it that next day. And my first episode said like, I don't know if anyone's going to be listening to this. And sure as shit, they, I guess they're listening. Um, but yeah. And so, and ever since then, I'm just down the spiritual rabbit hole. And I particularly am drawn to like Western esotericism. I love that stuff. Um, but I study all different types, but it's mostly rooted in mysticism and it's connect this kind of oneness because that's the first message I received in in like deep meditation. And so I've been in pursuit of people that um, feel that way. And my favorite mystic is um, Jiddu Krishnamurti. And I'm not sure if you've ever come across him, but he's just the most amazing person. And yeah, that's that's the rabbit hole. I'll, have you read, I'll pause there. <laughs> have you read Ram Das? Be here now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so you, you, I love this word that you use spiritual starvation yeah looking back at you in your 20s and some of the things you've gone through do you identify a spirit spiritual starvation that existed in your life and that you were trying to you know really feed yourself or feed the ego with this external means absolutely i i was trying to find myself in people places and things you know and that it absolutely was spiritual starvation. And my spiritual director, you know, Joy T, she helped me understand that too. She was just like, from a very young age, you were screaming out for that. Um, and it just wasn't met with the answer that it needed to be met with. And she's, like I said, in the very beginning of this podcast, if you were in a different culture in a different time, that would have been immediately identified by your family and you would have been put with the medicine woman or with someone that would have nurtured these feelings and, and helped you answer these unanswerable questions. And I think that, that that seeking and me kind of being pushed away from that, it led to these splits in my psyche where then it was just 
I, these big feelings had nowhere else to go. And, and I think it just led to just uh, what we described in this episode. <laughs> if I throw two words at you, I just want to get a sense of what, what they mean to you. Resurrection, alchemy. Oof. I mean, I say in my podcast, every intro, you know, the, the podcast is emotional alchemy because my favorite alchemical phrase is solve et coagula, which in Latin means like dissolve and coagulate, which means essentially like falling apart and coming back together. And as I mentioned, I truly believe that today we are collectively missing this initiatory experience. And we are also we have fallen into this belief that, especially Christianity, that it is literal, right? That Jesus literally, you know, that all these things are literal. And who knows? I'm not saying they're not, but we're missing the allegory. Jesus preached in allegory. He taught in these stories, which by the way, there's a lot of different other examples of Christ-like figures that died and then came back. Osiris being one of them, which is a tale of resurrection. And get what happens to Osiris his body is split into a million different parts and it's hidden everywhere and Isis goes and puts him back together and he comes back to life. We have to fall apart to come back together into something new, right? It's the same reason why I love Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey of, you know, going on a quest. I love Virgil, you know, the, the, the different circles of hell, the tale of Odysseus. Like history is so rich with these stories of needing to go into suffering, finding people that help you along the way, falling apart, coming back together, and then coming back home to yourself. You know, it's not something to be pathologized. It's something to be felt, moved through, and then validated. And then, you know, then come back and find your strength and then use those lessons that you've learned to help other people who are absolutely going to go through that because it's part of the human experience. Which is the tragedy of our modern culture. It's a tragedy of our modern healthcare system is we don't have these stories that are passed down from generation to generation to help us understand the uh, emotional pain and suffering that we need to go through in order to evolve spiritually. And I, when I read the, the, the Bible, I, I think of Christ consciousness that yes. is within all of us. And the continued growing and expansion of that consciousness. You know, and Jesus didn't want us to idolize him, okay? If Jesus, the person, could come back, he would be like, bro, you guys got this all wrong. No. I, he want, He said the kingdom of God is within you, yes. right? You can find this for yourself. He didn't want to be idolized. He would be horrified by what some of the churches, the Mick churches, as I call them, are doing in his name. He would be horrified to see Starbucks in some of these churches or some of these preachers that are making millions of dollars, right? He preached against that. I mean, look at the Pharisees and how he felt about them, right? You only have to go back and research this stuff to know. I, it, it baffles me that we don't speak about this more. Have you ever heard of or read the Book of Miracles? No. Well, it would take you, I mean, I'm a year and a half into it. It's a, I'm sorry, it's a course. Oh, a course, a course in, in miracles. miracles. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no wonder. And you you yeah. read of um, Marianne Williamson quote, and she's a big fan of A Course in Miracles. My really good friend, Bob, who I had on my podcast, he wrote this book called Original Sin is a Lie. And he is a huge fan. And I have it right here, actually, on my shelf behind me. Um, 
and I haven't gotten, I have not like gotten into it too far because it's hefty, but I have it. And sometimes I'll like flip it open to a page and read something because it's really beautiful. So yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. So A Course in Miracles, I think I'm about a year and a half into it. I slowly go through it. There's daily yeah. lessons. Yep. And what I've always asked for in meditation and with some of my experiences is wisdom. Please give me the next lesson. You know, I, I yep. view it that way and it's just... It's amazing how the lessons are provided to me at the right time. Course in Miracles was channeled uh, to a, a woman in the 1970s. I can't remember her name. It took seven years for her to write. She was an atheist. And yep. she worked, I think it was a professor at uh, NYU. But anyway, it is the most incredible wisdom and the depth to it. it take, you have to slowly digest it. It, it feels very supernatural. And yep. But once the lessons start coming together, you understand things from a completely different perspective. It is an expansion of consciousness. And I've been turned on to other channelers lately. Like the book I'm reading right now is The Wisdom of the, of the Council. And we see that there are, there are these amazing people who've been provided these gifts where they can actually channel these guides who yeah. are really there to, to serve us. I mean, they're, they just they love us so much and they care about raising our, our consciousness and yep. uh, transcending through the suffering that we all create. And some of the lessons that are certainly, you know, really focused on is, you know, how internally we, you know, we create our own existence. We do create yep. the lives in which we, we are living. Not to say that the events themselves don't exist no. in the manner in which they exist, but our consciousness, our understanding of them gets extremely limited by the ego-based mind. And it's such a shame that stuff like that also has become so like, again, the kind of like spirituality, pop psych, like pop psychology, pop spirituality stuff of like the secret, right? Yeah. Manifest, like manifesting manifest your abundance. own reality. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. And that's again, that's why it makes me devastated because yes, I, I just did a three-part series on something called like the trauma worlds. And it's basically like, I call it paranoid golem energy. Like that's like how I felt <laughs> like that I was approaching the world, like just constantly thinking that the world is a bad place full of bad people that want to do horrible things to you. Because guess what? That's what my experience was. Yeah. But then the problem is, is that when you finally find yourself in a safe environment with a safe person and you're still living through paranoid golem energy through the trauma world, you are manifesting your reality. Mm -hmm. You're going to sabotage those good things. You're going, but it's not, oh, manifesting abundance. It's no, you're manifesting a fucking shit show. And it doesn't mean that I'm man, by the way, and that also does not mean that I'm manifesting my rape or I am manifesting my sexual assault because I did not, yeah. you know? And that's where I think a lot of people out there are doing some really fucked up stuff um, in psychology. There are some people right now that are creators online that are saying, you're just not doing the work right. You're just manifesting all in this into your life. And I'm going, look, people need to feel safe. They need to understand what happened to them. They need to go through the grieving process to be able to even hold some of these spiritual truths and to be told that you are manifesting trauma in your life. I can't think of anything worse to tell someone, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm looking at things at a, a different way. So when, when, yeah. when you and started, I know your you are, by the way, <laughs> when you, yeah, when you started your podcast, right, it was a creation. There's yes. a, there's an idea in your mind about what you want to create. And the manifestation of that is your action. It is your choice. 
And yeah. you can be inspired and you can be connected to a Holy Spirit or Christ consciousness that's working within you. And once you accept it and once you allow it, you have this willingness and ability to create. For for clients who uh, you know might have gone through some horrific traumas as you did, we're so also creating an idea around it, right? It happened. It happened for a reason. We can we can create a, an understanding of who we are. I'm broken. I this happened because of me and the choices I made, and that can create so much toxic shame. And that toxic shame is what then continues to manifest or create That's itself right. in new in other relationships that the people that you choose the choices mm -hmm. that you make the risks that you take and don't take until there's a way that you can resolve that for yourself and you mm -hmm. can expand your consciousness around it you can see it differently you know maybe molly looks at some of her uh, some of the trauma that existed in your life as like a necessary process for your soul's evolution Right? That's, that's a different way of understanding our lives because if we see ourselves as eternal souls, then our experiences in this physical plane, in this human body, in this time are quite short, right? Yeah. You know, when you think about it internally, in fact, it's a, it's a, it's really snapping of the but finger. But the important part there is, is that I had to understand that myself. Yeah. No one could tell me that. And if they did, it's almost like if you tell someone, when I worked in that drug rehab center, you could tell the people that came there because they said, okay, I'm sick enough of my own shit. I'm ready to come do this. And guess what? It was a big difference between that and the people that came there because their family said, we're done with you if you don't go to rehab. You know, yeah. those were to be the people that you'd see them back again and again and again, or maybe God forbid we'd get a call and say they weren't with us anymore. And that's just like my experience. No one could have sat there and told me any of the things that we're talking about. I had to come to that understanding for myself. Like you have to have the realization. And once you have that, you're never going back. And that's when I get a lot of voicemails from my listeners that say, you know, oh no, I, it's happening again. I'm so scared I'm going to lose all the progress I've made, right? That's such a common thing. And I tell them, you're never going back to that unawakened version of yourself ever again. Okay. Like you can never be that person because you were completely unconscious and it's a lot more painful. I'll say it was a lot easier when I was just a bull in a China shop, just fucking up my own life, being horrible to other people because I wasn't conscious. Yeah. When you start recovering and you start going, you accidentally explode on someone that you love and you're going, oh shit, I did that again. Like that's the painful part. That's the most painful part because you're going, wait, I thought I knew better than that. It's like, no, then you start realizing that's all the programming, right? Like you have to deprogram that. But just the fact that you're conscious of it now is like sets you apart so much from the neurotypicals out there that are so emotionally constipated that they're going to just one day it like explode when they're 50 or something and like cheat on their wife and like their whole life falls apart, right? It's better that you rip your own life apart, fall apart consciously, and then build yourself up. Um, so, yeah. I'm aware of time. We've had you for two hours. Yeah, and, um, yeah. I want to conclude on, on some concepts. So like one of the things you, you mentioned in the beginning was just how our science is starting to evolve with our spirituality and our understandings and things that have been written for centuries when you start thinking about quantum physics and, the, and time and space. And yeah. the idea of energy is something that uh, is 
really new to me to kind of view ourselves as energetic beings with, uh, with, with frequency and, uh, like a vibration that exists. And, you know, that's the kind of that feeling of like, you get vibes, right? Like you, when you talked about being around the music producer, like you got the vibes right away, right? Yep. That we are all connected. Uh, we are, we are one, we are one universe, we are connected. And I do think part of our human evolution and the evolution that is going to exist in mental health is to understand ourselves as interconnected. And I've started, I'm working with this thing called heart math right now. Heart math is mm. a heart coherence technology that is, you know, targets heart rate variability, but it's meditative practices and visualizations mm -hmm. and connecting with your heart energy. And when I do it, I can feel... I can feel the energy through my body. It's like this weird buzzing in my body. And I've been in my sessions, I've kind of transformed from being this therapist who's very intellectual and in his head and sometimes just moving to actually just sitting and like praying for the person in front of me or connecting mm -hmm. with that heart rhythm and expressing silently even a love for that person. And I've mentioned yeah. this on the podcast before about how that can affect the person's emotions and how they can self-regulate. Since I work with people who are trauma victims, they might come into the session knowing they're gonna be talking about things that are quite painful, and they can be very on guard and very anxious, and just doing some of these exercises or just slowing down in my mind can create this space and affect the person in front of me. I think there's all these opportunities for us to understand how we could heal ourselves, how uh, we can heal each other with kind of understanding uh, the mind-body yeah. experience, energy, connection, purpose around each other. There's just so much there that when we say stuck in this biomedical model, uh, this labeling, this judging, everything that kind of goes on with the medical system and its, its drugging of the human experience, we are self-limiting. And everyone has so many capacities. We've like talked about this just from the beginning. We were talking about Marianne Williams about how I think people are afraid of their light. They're afraid of the Very power. Much. And sometimes drawn well, to the Well, because then you darkness. realize how much control you actually have to have, you know? It's your free will, and that's scary. To realize that no one's coming to save you is very scary. Mm. And necessary. Yeah. And that's the beauty of your podcast, is I, I think you're, you're stepping into areas or arenas around this. Uh, you know, how can we advance human understanding and consciousness to heal ourselves? Um, one of the things that listening to some of these channels and these books are going to be day, we're going to be able to telepathically communicate. It sounds crazy. I have no doubt. Yeah. It sounds crazy yeah. right now with what we know, but go down, you know, four centuries back and, and talk about AI and computers and the internet and all those things. And I'll think we're crazy then too. Mm -hmm. Right. Read Diana Pasolka's book encounters. I'm telling you, you have, you guys both have to read it. She talks all about this as well. And Chris Bledsoe, the experiencer I interviewed, he said like, all the information he gets from is it's channeled, but it's like, it's, he knows it. It's, it's the same experience. And when I talked to him, he's the first person he was like, yeah, I get it. When I told him about my mystical experience, I was like, look, I don't hear voices. It's like, I know it. It's like, annoying. It's annoying. And my favorite mystical text is called the cloud of unknowing. And if anyone is like just wanting to, there's an amazing translation of this mystical text. It's a, um, it's from the Middle Ages, and it's from a monk who is an anonymous author, by the way. And that's how you know it's a real mystic too, because he didn't even want to be recognized for who he was. And um, Evelyn Underhill does the translation of this, and I got it on Audible. And 
that's it. That's mysticism in a phrase, like the cloud of unknowing, right? It's like, we're not comfortable with not knowing. We want to say, this is the label. This is how it is. This is reality. What I can see, taste, touch, and this is how it's going to be. We have to embrace. The best thing I tell my listeners, the best you can do is embrace like, I don't know, work on your critical thinking skills and just realize that like, we don't know. You don't know. Anything is possible. And actually, you think people will tell you that the more you lean into that, the crazier you will be. But in reality, you actually become more truly who you are. And and speaking to when I quiet my mind, I'll write a sub stack in like an hour uh, in the morning yeah. that I need to publish it. You know, I've kind of set these rules for myself that's going to be published every Thursday and I might not have anything and I'll just sit and kind of oh, quiet God bless meditation. You. I need to be more diligent <laughs> with my sub stack. And I just ask <sighs> for it, right? And then I just yeah. write. So like the one that's coming out on Thursday is on forgiveness. Um, mm. And and I was, you know, that just came through me on how important forgiveness of self and forgiveness of others Mm -hmm. as a form of healing and resilience and that idea the things we don't talk about enough in 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 mental health but uh, i just think we're on the verge of humanity's expansion of consciousness and it's an exciting time to be alive right now and i think there's a lot of doomsday people there's a lot of lizard person discourse around you know but why not and, and think about it from time immemorial, it's always been, this is the end, you know, like I went through the Y2K times. I, there always, there's going to be people that saying, this is the end of the world. This is the worst it's ever been. And I'm not saying there aren't bad things, but we are in a really exciting time right now. Like amazing things are happening. And if you just tune into that and start working on your own like sense of integration, leaning into some of these things that we're talking about here on the podcast, you'll start realizing that like you can lean into your own healing and all that noise is going to keep on happening outside, but it's a lot easier to create that center inside yourself. Well said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's good to end on right there. Um, Molly, where can people find your work? How can they get in touch with you? Backfromtheborderline.com. You can find everything there. That website redirects right to my link tree where you can listen to my podcast on any streaming site. You can read my sub stack. You can listen to the dog next door barking to me. That's really annoying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can you can find me there. Um, and I don't think you necessarily have to start at the first episode actually because especially your listeners, if you start at my very first episode, you're going to hear molly just waking up Uh, but you can start at any episode that catches your eye i actually recommend that approach just scroll through and see what calls to you and i would love to welcome your listeners into my podcast world so please join us can we get a a night night bitch before we go Oh my God. Yeah. You can also find my other podcast night night bitch. I started that (laughs) podcast by the way, because I was actually kind of scared to go too spiritual on Back from the Borderline and I I needed like an outlet to start reading some of these mystical texts that I was reading. And so what I did was I started Night Night Bitch because I wanted like a cheeky little name. Um, And then I read some like texts and I put solfeggio frequencies behind them. And it's just like a nice podcast to fall because it actually is like a love letter to my little self because you know how I told you that I couldn't fall asleep without like storybooks 
And I wish that when I was little, I could have had those things read to me. And so I imagined the girl who is like suicidal in her room. And if she hears like an episode of Night Night Bitch, like one of these texts, maybe it could help her, you know? So I started that just as like a passion project. Um, but it kind of gave me the courage to start being more open about spirituality on back from the borderline too. But at the end of each episode, I say night, night, bitch. <laughs> so, <laughs> so little, little, that's what I say. little story, Sean. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. my wife, my wife and, uh, my daughter, Alexa, and they don't know that I've been listening to your podcast and everything. And just like one night, um, Alexa was like, good night. And I just went night, night, bitch. And she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Dad, what are you, what? And I was just in my like, and Tracy. Dad's been awakened. (laughs) And I had to explain to them because I love the voice too. Like I, I definitely put on my more like calming. Like I have a very calming voice that I can do on night, night, bitch. And then there's like (laughs) what I'm doing to talk to you guys, you know? So yeah. Molly, really appreciative of the openness and the candor and telling your story today. I think it really set the stage for understanding your podcast and where you are in your life. I mean, it was truly a radically genuine conversation. I appreciate that. Thank you guys. And Sean for being like grade A best listener ever. That was my role in this one. (laughs) I mean, amazing listening skills because I have such a hard time like like not jumping in sometimes. And so it's like, that is a skill on its own. And thank you, Roger, because even just talking to you, you know, having someone, just some of the things you said to me, it made me realize even more. That's the beauty of all this stuff. Of That's why I, I pinch myself and just am so grateful I get to do what I do because it allows me to talk to amazing people and these conversations, they're healing for me too. So my hope is that someone that can relate to my story out there could also feel um, seen and heard as well. And you're not alone and you're not broken and you can come back from the borderline, you know? Yeah. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis, or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.